Hello, this is David Keel, and I'd like to welcome you to TNBS, the Thursday Night Bible Study. This study was held on November 11th, 2010. Tonight, we almost finish up the book of Romans, continuing our study looking at the 15th chapter. So welcome again. This is TNBS, Volume 2, Session 29. Okay, Romans, 15th chapter. We're winding things down now. Paul has pretty much given all of his basic theology, uh, which he talks about in the first eight chapters, and we have 9, 10, 11, where he talks about the Jews' part, the, the, the part that the Jews play in all of this, and then we have 12, 13, and 14, where some people classify this as being his practical theology. This is where he gets down to a little bit more applications of his theology and applications of our beliefs. He's going to carry this over into 15 just a little bit. And then he's going to kind of wrap things up. And next week we will get into the 16th chapter, which is the last chapter, which there's some debate as to whether even the 16th chapter was part of the original letter. I always say that's going to be hard to teach on. Uh, it's, it is a little hard to teach on because basically he's just sending greetings after greetings after greetings about these different personalities. But we will talk a little bit about who these personalities are. Some of them have kind of an interesting connection with Paul. Uh, and then he winds things up. And then hopefully uh, I will try... Uh, to give kind of a summary of the whole book. So that's what we'll do next week. But tonight we're going to pick it up in the 15th chapter. Now, Paul in the 15th chapter kind of continues his discussion from chapter 14. If you remember last week, Paul was, t- was talking about his teachings of, of one not looking down on the other and that we're all equal and, and talks about food to idols and the calendar and how these were the two, two of the three big issues that were decisive, that were de- not decisive, derisive, the things that caused... Divisive. There we go. Thank you, Jillian. That, that were that, these were three. These were two of the the three issues that were divisive among the Jew and the Gentiles. That kind of was always cropped up between them. Their dietary restrictions, and then the calendars, and the and the, and the festivals and holidays, and then also the third one would be circumcision. That was the other the issue that kind of separated them. So he talked about that and how he he makes this point that these issues of just personal habits should not separate us, should not be a, a point of contention among believers, he said, because God loves us all. And he loves those who have what Paul calls a weaker faith, just as much as he loves those who has a stronger faith. And we're going to get a little bit more into that definition tonight as to what he means, because, Jeff, you mentioned that last week about bringing up the fact where he refers to some as being weak in faith as opposed to strong in faith. So, going back and remembering also that in the original letter, there were, there were no chapter, or there were no verses. In fact, there were no sentences in the original letter. So there are no chapter divisions in the original letter. So this is basically a continuation, really, of chapter 14. Reading chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Now here again, Paul talks about these strong and these weak. We touched on a little bit last week, where he says the strong, which, by the way, he includes himself in that category, are the ones whose faith have, has matured to the point that they recognize the freedom they have in Christ. Recognize that, that, as he says back up in the 17th verse of the 14th chapter, where he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy and Holy Spirit. He said these, these issues of eating and calendar days and, and drinking, and these issues are not what the kingdom of God is all about. You know, so he makes it a point in the 14th chapter where these, these personal habits should not be a separation or a, a point of contention among the believers. And he goes on to say that those of us who have a strong faith, those of us who have matured in our faith to recognize that we do have the freedom to eat whatever we want to eat because it's all from God, 
and that we have the freedom that we can worship on any day of the week. God doesn't really care. It's more important that we worship rather than what day of the week we worship on. And that we don't have to keep all these festivals and all these calendar days because that's not the whole point, you know. He said those of us who are, are strong or mature enough in our faith to realize that we have these freedom should bear, as he says there in, in verse 15, we should bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. He said we should, we should bear the, weak, the weaker ones, the weaker ones who have not matured to that point in their faith, who have not matured to the point of realizing that they are free from the old rules and rituals that they used to have to abide by. And remember, he basically is talking about there the Greeks and the Jews. The Greeks he's primarily referring to as those who have matured in their faith or who are stronger in their faith because they don't have the history of all the rites and rituals that the, that the Jewish believers had. These Jews were, were raised as Jews. They were raised in the Jewish law. They were raised in the, in the abiding by all the festivals. They were raised in the, in the sacrificial worship in the temple. They were raised in going to the temple three times a day and worshiping on Saturday and you know all of those, those things and, and the restriction on eating meat that's offered to idols. So this is the kind of the, the baggage which they bring with them into the Christian faith where it's all based on grace. It's all based on God's grace, not anything that we've done or not done. It's based on God's grace. So those he's kind of referred to are the weak ones. He said, however, we the strong ones, we, he including himself, because as he says back up in the 14th chapter, he himself doesn't get hung up on all these old rituals, because he's learned. He's learned the freedom that he now has in Christ. Freedom from all those rituals and rites that he used to have to abide by when he was uh, a full-fledged Jew, as opposed to a Jewish Christian. Remember, he's not talking about issues that are, are basic to salvation. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about fellow believers who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he said some have not matured in their faith to recognize the freedom they have from, from, from all the old Jewish rites and rituals. Some of them still get hung up on that. And he says we are to bear these weaker brothers. And the word there, bear is batazo, I guess would be the proper way to pronounce that, which basically means to raise up or to support. And that's what it means there. We should support these weaker brothers. I'm reading on verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell upon me. Each of us is to live raising up the weaker ones, raising up our fellow believers. That should be our concern. Our concern should be about their welfare. We're to edify them, and the Greek word there for edify means to build up. We're to, to, to build them up for his edification, Paul says in verse 2. And this is what Christ did. This is the way he lived his life. This is what Christ taught us to do. And we're, and we're not to be self-centered. The strength of the church does not come from believers being independent, but rather interdependent. It really doesn't. It doesn't come from us, each one of us, being independent and living independently. The strength of a church, the strength of a body of believers, comes from interdependence. And as Paul has talked about this already when he, previously when he was talking about each of us having different talents and abilities and, and using these talents and abilities working together for the glory of God and working together to strengthen the body, which is the church of Jesus Christ. So this is what he's talking about here. Uh, we are to work together. Verse 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now Paul goes on to say that, that through the perseverance, and this is hupomone, this is perseverance unto things, rather macrothemia, which is perseverance with, with people. 
with perseverance, with, with steadfastness, with keeping on, keeping on, and with the encouragement of the Scriptures. Now, in Paul's day, he was talking about basically the Old Testament Scriptures and then the few New Testament letters that were in circulation at that time. Because we have the advantage of having the New Testament. But it's the encouragement of the Scriptures. He says, so through perseverance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, then we have this hope. What hope is he talking about? Well, let's flip back. Flip back to Romans 5. Because he talks about this hope that we have. Romans 5, starting with verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that was one of the advantages that we now enter into this new relationship with Christ. We now have a peace with God. We're no longer an enemy with God. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction to faith by this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God which has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this is this hope that he's talking about. This hope that we have in Christ for the fact that we will eventually receive the full glory. And he talks about this, this glory, this hope of glory which we have. And it's the same glory which Christ received. Because we, having been joined with Christ in baptism... He was raised unto everlasting life. We are raised unto everlasting life. Christ was glorified by His Father. We will be fully glorified by the Father. Because we're joint heirs with Christ. Sons of God. This is His thought process here. So this is this hope that He's talking about here. And He says this, through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we have this hope. We have this hope that we can look forward to when we finally do become into the full glory of the Father. Verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this God who gives us this encouragement and who who gives us this peace of mind that working together, no one better or less than any other one else, working together, we can glorify our Lord Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father. Now, Paul makes this point over and over again. He mentions it several times in previous chapters about this unity of the body. The importance of, of us all not thinking more highly of ourselves than someone else, but at the same time, don't think more lowly of ourselves than somebody else. We are all equal in the sight of God. Going back again to our, remember our uh, bowl and, and trash can, wasn't it, Jillian? Wasn't it? Yeah, bowl and trash can we talked about. You know, you know they, they, in, in man's eyes, the bowl may be more glorified than the trash can. But in God's eyes, if he created them both, they'll equally loved. They'll equally, they, they can equally be glorified. They can equally be used to do what God wants to do. Okay? And, this, and Paul makes this point over and over. And apparently, apparently, maybe he was concerned about there being a problem with the unity in the church at Rome. And there could very well be, if you remember the history of this church. Remember, it started out probably totally Jewish, started getting Gentile converts into the church. And then Claudius, I think it was, who came along and kicked all the, all the Jews out of Rome. So now the church was suddenly all Gentile, because all the, all the Jews had to leave. And then the church continued to grow with basically a Gentile population. And then when the Jews were allowed to come back into Rome, they rejoined the church. So now you have a Gentile Jewish church. Started out Jew, went Jew-Gentile, then went Gentile, now it's Gentile-Jew probably more Gentiles or Greeks than Jews. 
So <clears throat> there may have been this, this non-unity in the church, and, and maybe this is what Paul is trying to address here. He didn't want the, the Jews to get the big head because they were the chosen people and had the law, had the special relationship with Yahweh for thousands of years, had the prophets, had all the rules and regulations, had all the festivals, had the sacrificial laws that they followed. They shouldn't get the big head over that because, like Christ says, you're just like anyone else in the sight of God. He didn't want the Greeks to get the big head by thinking, well, you, you, you poor folks are still worried about what kind of meat you're trying to eat. You know, it's got nothing to do with your salvation. Grow up. You know, he didn't want them to get that big kind of big head. So he didn't want them to put down each other, and he didn't want them to, to think more highly of themselves than anybody else. So here again, he mentions this point again in, the, in this 5th and 6th verses of this 15th chapter. He says, we need to be one body, one mind, one voice, all working together to worship and glorify God. That should be what the church is all about. It shouldn't be one person or one group of people trying to be better than somebody else. Or one person or one group of people thinking themselves less than somebody else. Again, going back to his illustration of the body of Christ in, in 12th chapter of, of 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, the ear, the leg, the foot, the hand, the eye, they're all different functions. But they're equally important because they're all part of the body. And if they don't all do what they're designed to do, then the body will not function properly. And it's easy, as you all have probably seen in churches, to get this division started being created and, and for one people to look at another people and saying, you know, y'all are wrong and we are right and this kind of thing. And, and you need to do it our way. And so he's emphasizing this again, this unity of the church. We should have the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that our one accord, verse 6, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity. All together. All in one body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body. All of us are individual members. Each one with a specific function. Some bowls, some trash cans. But we're each to be the best bowl or trash can we can be. Depending on what God has designed us to do. Okay. Verse 7. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Therefore, we are to accept each other, following the example of Christ, who accepts us all. Because as far as Christ is concerned, we're all equal. So there again, he makes that a point. Wherefore, accept one another. Verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promise given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. He says we are to accept each other equally as equals in the church. As fellow believers, we are equal. Our faith may be maybe a little bit more mature than yours in some areas, but that's okay. There's to be a unity in the church. We are to accept one another. He said because that's that's the way Christ looks at us, as equals. He came to the circumcised, as he says in verse 8, which is the Jews, and he came to them in obedience to God through the death, of his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, in obedience to his Father. He came to the circumcised in fulfillment of the law, in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. You know, going all the way back to Abraham, the promise that God made to Abraham. You'll be, my, you'll be my people, and I'll be your God. I'll make your father many nations. You know, through you, basically, the salvation of the world is going to come through the, through the Jewish nation, which it did. And so to the Jews, that's the way Christ came, as fulfillment of the promise. To the, to the uncircumcised, he became a servant to the Gentiles through obedience to God to demonstrate God's great mercy, to glorify God for his mercy. 
So the Jews would look at Christ as coming, living, sacrificial death, as being a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise of salvation to the Jewish people. The Gentiles would look at that as an example of God's great mercy. But Christ came for both. This is the point he's making here. Christ came for both, Jew and Gentile. And so one is not any more important than the other. And then he quotes Old Testament scriptures, and uh, we're not going to look all these up, but if you want to know, it was Psalms 18.49, Deuteronomy 32.43, Psalms 117.1, uh, and Isaiah 11.10, where these verses come from. And he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, which, by the way, was the Jewish terminology for this, the Messiah, the root of Jesse. Remember who Jesse was? Who was Jesse? David's father. David's father, yeah. So the root of Jesse was David. And through that root of Jesse came Christ. Because he was of the house of David, you know, through that lineage. And he arose to rule over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. So Paul uses the Old Testament scripture to bring his point that, yes, Christ came as fulfillment of the promise to the Jews, but yes, he also came to the Gentiles, as the Old Testament scriptures comment. Remember, originally, all along, going all the way back to the Isaiah and several verses, what he quotes here and back in the Psalms, the Messiah was to come from the Jewish nation, through the Jewish nation. He was to be a Jew. He was to come into the world as the Messiah for the world, the Savior, to the Jewish people first, and then they were to carry that Messiah to the world. But it was always to the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, not the Jews. So that was God's plan all along, that salvation would be to all people. To the Jew first, from the Jews, through the Jews, to the Jews, and then from them to to the Gentiles. But, since they weren't doing such a hot job of that <laughs> and accepting Jesus Christ, that's when Paul comes on the scene with his ministries to the Gentiles. And you know, if you remember, God had some work to do with Peter as well to get his thought process changed a little bit from just Jews to Jews and Gentiles. So, okay. Verse 13. You almost think the book's going to end here. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul kind of summarizes this section up in praise for the church that the God who gives us hope and encouragement and helps us to persevere will also fill us with joy and peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in essence, Paul does kind of summarize, kind of stops there because he's going to shift focus now. Uh, he's, he's spelled out his theology he spelled out the role Jews are going to play in all of this, where they are in the scheme of things. He's talked about the salvation of God having come by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He's talked about us being sanctified and, and made righteous and justified. He's talked about how that, should, how that should be fleshed out in our lives in chapter 12, 13, 14. He's talked about how we should all be working together. And he basically says, now may the, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now he's going to shift gears a little bit. Because now he's going to get into a little bit more of why he's writing this letter. And we've already talked about a little bit of this. Surely y'all remember. It wasn't but 12 months ago. <laughs> 
almost, <laughs> in January when we started talking about this. Uh, in fact, I think I remember back in then when I was telling you, to really know why Paul wrote this letter, we've got to go to the end of the book. <laughs> we've got to go to the end of the letter and read it. So he's going to be talking about that now. And so that's kind of when he kind of shifts gears here. Verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Paul starts off by encouraging the church at Rome. Now remember, he's never been there. He's never been to the church at Rome. But like the church at Colossae, or Colossae, because he was never at that church either when he wrote that letter, or, and, and also the church um, Titus. I mean, you know, I don't think Paul was ever at the church of Crete either. But Paul knew him from the reputation. He knew him from the reputation. Here he says, And concerning you, my brother, and I myself, I'm also convinced, based on your reputation, based on what I've heard from other believers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, that you're filled with knowledge, and able to admonish one another. So Paul then encourages the church, claiming to know them by the reputation, to be a church that were doing good things, that were full of the knowledge of the gospel, and able to help and to guide others. So he starts off with this word of encouragement. Now he gets in, uh, in verse 15 and 16. But I have written you very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Ministering as a priest, the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, listen, in writing this letter, I've been kind of bold with you. I know that. Some of y'all don't know me. Some, y'all, a lot of y'all have never met me. You know, I know you by your reputation. Well, you know me by my reputation, okay? And I'm an apostle, that's true. But apparently there were some others in the church there that could also claim the name of apostle, and that is basically based on the definition of having seen Christ when he was alive. He says, but I've been very bold here. And the reason I've been very bold is because of the authority that I have by Jesus Christ as a minister to the Gentiles, as a preacher of the gospel. And as he ministered to the Gentiles, on that authority, that's the reason I've been so bold. And that's the reason I've been so blunt with you. And that's the reason I've been coming right out and telling you what I think, you know? So he said, also to remind you. Now, you, he just said you have a knowledge up in verse 14. I've, I've heard of y'all's knowledge of the gospel. But I just want to remind you of these things. And so all this, all that he's spelled out in this letter, he's been very bold, very blunt, very upfront with these folks, to, just to remind them to remind them of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that that means. Paul has written these things to remind them of the <laughs> basics of Christianity. And he has done this boldly based on the fact that he was called to preach to the Gentiles and to minister and, be, and to be a minister of the gospel. So that's basically his, his authority, is the fact that he's been called to preach to the Gentiles and to be a minister of the gospel. Okay, verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reasons for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Verse 19. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Elicrium, Elacrium, Elacrium, yeah, as far as that place, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul says, and guys, I'm, a, I'm quite proud of what I have accomplished. He says, therefore in Christ I have found reason for boasting. But listen to me carefully. I'm not boasting on the things that I have accomplished. I'm boasting on the things that God has done through me with the Gentiles. 
in churches all across Asia and Greece. He says, that's what I'm proud of. He's boasting not about what he has done, but what God has done through him. For I will not presume, in verse 18, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That should be the source of our boasting. It should not be what we have done. It should be what God has done through us. That's the only source of boasting that we have. Is what God has done through us. What we have allowed God to use us to do. That's what we can be proud of, in that sense. Of what God has done through us. It resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Read now verse 20. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. And now, Paul is basically leading up to his whole point of why he's writing this letter. He said, now he desires to preach the gospel where Christ's name has not been preached, where other preachers have not gone, where even he himself has not gone. And I aspire to preach the gospel where Christ was already, not where Christ was already named. He says, you know, I've gone around all across Asia Minor and all across Greece, and, and I've started all these churches. Uh, I've been privileged to preach the gospel to Gentiles all across this area. I want to go to another area. And remember, he made, what, three missionary journeys? And quite often they were back to the same churches that he'd already established. He was revisiting a lot of the churches. Now he's, I'm ready to move on. I want to go somewhere where nobody else has gone. I want to go somewhere where the name of Christ has not been preached. And in just a few minutes, he's going to tell us where that is. He says, I want to move on. Because, because I believe, as it says there, uh, by the way, that's Isaiah 52, 15, he's quoting here. He says, because I believe if I can get to these places where Christ has not been preached, I'm convinced that they will believe this gospel that I'm, that I'm trying to share with them. As he says, those, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who had not heard of him shall understand. He says, just as I've seen Gentiles respond all across Asia Minor and, and Greece, I'm fully convinced that if I can present the gospel to another area, an area where Christ's name has not been preached, where Apollos or all these, all these, all these other teachers have not already gone, that people there will believe, accept Christ just as well, just as readily accept Christ as they have where I have preached. That's where I want to go. But because of all the work that he had been needed to accomplish in Asia Minor and Greece, uh, he had been preventing from coming to Rome. But verse 22, For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you. Basically, he says, you know, I've been really wanting to come to y'all, to see y'all, but I've been so busy here, going around to all these churches and starting these churches and preaching this gospel, but that's pretty well wrapped up now. The gospel's pretty well got this area covered. So until now, I've been prevented from coming to see you, but now I'm ready to come see you. Now I'm anxious to come see you. And he has an ulterior motive, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, Paul does have an ulterior motive for going to the church at Rome, which he's going to subtly, subtly mention right here. Uh, he's going to kind of sneak this in. <laughs> so, verse 23. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, because he's been all around starting all these churches, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, okay, guys, I've been wanting to come from Rome for a long time because I've heard of y'all, y'all are, y'all are full of good works and y'all have got knowledge and y'all admonishing one another and, and I want to come be a part of that and I want to come share with you but I've been so busy starting all these churches I just had not had a chance now but now that the church is all things over here pretty well cranked up and going now I'm ready to come see you because I have longed to come see you 
for many years a longing to, to, to you. Look at verse 24 when we pick up his motive. A longing to, to come to you whenever I go to Spain. For I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Paul is saying, guys, we want to come see you a long time. Been tied up over here in Asia Minor in Greece. Got those things all, all the loose end pretty much tied up. I'm ready to move to areas where Christ has not been. The name hadn't been preached. And I want to come see you because I'm hoping that you will help me on my way to Spain. <laughs> so that's a little uh, ulterior motive there. Uh, I'm, but at the same time, I'm quite sure Paul did have a great longing to visit this church in Rome because of all the churches that he started or had visited, this church was probably more in the, the hotbed of Satan than any of the others considering they were in the, the capital of the Roman Empire and all of the persecutions that were soon to come about. So, Paul, yes, Paul does want to go to Spain, but he does want to stop by the church at Rome. And as he says there, I'm longing to come see you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, to be helped by you, yes, on my way there, but also for after I have first enjoyed your company for a while. He said, listen, I want to come, I want to visit, I want to spend some time with y'all. I want to learn from you. I want you to learn some more from me. And then I want you, I want you to help me to go on to Spain. Now, does Paul ever make Spain... Eh, we don't know. Uh, it depends on how you look at not the Bible, but how you look at some peripheral historical writings. Uh, because there's some discussion as to how many times Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Um, a lot of people think he was imprisoned once. A lot of other people think he was imprisoned twice. That Yes, uh, he did go to Rome as a prisoner, but he was freed for two, two to three years. He went to Rome, went to Spain... They believe. Some people believe that. And then was it later arrested and sent back to Rome, and then that's when he was uh, killed on the Nero's rule. Uh, Nero's, <laughs> Nero's rule on the Nero's rule. <laughs> Nero rules. <laughs> Under, when, he was, when he was emperor in about uh, 67, 68 A.D. So, but anyway, that was, that's, that's basically why Paul is writing this letter. Guys, I want to be bold with you. I want to share you, my theology with you. But I want to go to Spain, and on the way I want to stop by and see you and spend some time with you. I'm writing the letter first, so you can get an idea of a little bit more of my, my personal feelings and my personal theology. And then I want you to help me move on to Spain. That's basically what he's saying there. He says, but before I can come to you, verse 25, he said, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Arcasia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles had shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and I put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Paul says, want to come, want to go to Spain, want to spend some time with you, and then move on. He says, but got one, one more thing I got to do first. Before I can come to you, I got to go back to Jerusalem. Because I've been taking the, the churches in Macedonia and Acacia have taken up a collection for the people in, in Jerusalem. And apparently this time in Jerusalem was going through a pretty rough time. I think there was a famine at that point, And the church at Jerusalem was probably suffering financially. And Paul says, so the churches at Macedonia and Acacia wanted to share materially with the church at Jerusalem. Because they felt indebted to the church at Jerusalem for what they had received spiritually. So basically they're saying, listen, you know, this whole 
Christianity thing started in Jerusalem. <laughs> it really did. And, that, and, and we, as a result, have, have benefited from the, spiritually from the gospel that has come out, come out of Jerusalem. So now we want to share back with them materially. So that's what he does first. Before he goes to Rome, he's got to go take this offering back to Jerusalem. Now we know, since we know the rest of the story, not when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't, but we know the rest of the story. When he goes back to Jerusalem, he gets into trouble. He has to uh, plead to the Roman government for protection to where he's actually arrested. And he does eventually get to Rome, but not as a free minister of the gospel. He gets to Rome as a prisoner of Rome. He gets to Rome in shackles, not in freedom. Not only that, but he gets there after having gone through a shipwreck, after having been bitten by a snake, and after having about two years of suffering trying to get to Rome as a prisoner. So he does finally get back to Rome like he had hoped, but it's not under the circumstances that he desired. He doesn't get there to spend time with the church at Rome and to fellowship with them and to learn with them and then to go on to Spain. He gets there as a prisoner. It is believed that while there he served his time as a prisoner uh, and was released and then did indeed go on to Spain. And then later, three or four years later, was arrested again, taken back to Rome, and that's when he died in like 67, 68 A.D. And you know, I, I don't know. Acts does not include that in its chronological history of Paul's travels. It doesn't mention Paul going to Spain. Did he? A lot of people say yes, but then some people say, well, if he did, surely there'd be some record of him having been in Spain. And there is no written record that we know of, of Paul ever having gone to Spain. So, you know, there's no ancient writings in Spain that, that talk about this apostle who came from, came from the east, rising in, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, there's no record of that. So I don't know. I don't know. But we do know that Paul did not go to Rome like he had anticipated. He was anticipated to go in there as a gospel, as a minister of the gospel of Gentiles, uh, sharing with the church at Rome and moving on to Spain. And instead, he went, he went there as a prisoner. And if you want to read about that, that's in, in Acts. Okay, verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He's asking for their prayers. And look at what he's asking them to pray for. Ask that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may, be, may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He's asking for protection. Because see, Paul knew that he may be getting into trouble going back to Jerusalem. In fact, in Acts, it talks about his travels heading back toward Jerusalem. And at one point, he runs across a seer. That's the one who can foretell the future. He runs across a seer who says, I, I, I have this mental picture. I have been given this vision of you in bondage, you know, tied up. The churches he went to as he was marching, his way, working his way back toward Jerusalem, every church kept telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, it's too dangerous. And so Paul, in writing this letter, uh, which he wrote it as he was traveling back toward Jerusalem, uh, he probably senses the same thing. He's asking for the people to pray for his protection, for his deliverance. Just one sidebar, verse 30. In verse 30 here, we can see the Trinity. A lot of people ask about, you know, where's the Trinity taught in the Bible? This is one place. Now, I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit that your prayers to God. So there you have Christ, the Spirit, 
and God, all mentioned in one verse. There's a couple other verses that, that talk about the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. But this is just one of them, just kind of a sidebar. If, because a lot of, I have heard people argue that you know, the Bible doesn't really teach, teach the Trinity. Well, it does. I mean, it talks about God the Father. It talks about the Holy Spirit. It talks about Jesus Christ the Son. But they said there's no, you know, no specific place. Well, this is one place where it's all three are mentioned. So just kind of a sidebar. So, okay. Finally, Paul asked for prayers. Uh, prayer for his safety and his trip to Rome. Because like I said, he knew he was going to be facing difficulty there. He really did. And he's looking forward to getting the business handled in Jerusalem, getting the blessings of the folk at the church there, and then moving on to them in joy and being replenished by their love. So, why was he writing this letter? He was writing this letter to remind them of the basics of Christianity, to share with them his personal theology, and to kind of prep them for who he is and what he's trying to do. And he's going to be going to them as an apostle, called by God, ministered to the Gentiles. He wants to move on to Spain, and he wants their help. But he also wants to spend some time with them in fellowship and sharing. And he's urging them. And he's fixing to urge them again in this very last chapter. He urges them to be of one mind and one heart and one voice in their worship to all to the glory of God. He, he repeatedly urges them to, be, to, to, to have the unity of the Spirit in the church. Because that's going to be the key for these churches to survive. It was key for any church to survive. And so I think that's one reason why Paul emphasizes strong, so strongly this unity of the church and unity of believers. The fact that we, we are all gifted differently, we are all talented differently, all by God, but we're all gifted and talented for a purpose. And that purpose is to work together for the glory of God, to build up the body of Christ. Pray with me. Father God, thank you, Lord, that... I just thank you for this whole book of Romans. We, we have learned so much in it. But Father, may we really grasp this point Paul is trying to make here of this unity. The fact that, that I am no better than anyone else and I am no less than anyone else. We are all children of God. We are all saved sinners. We are all loved by you equally. And we can all be used by you to accomplish your will, which will bring you glory, which will bring us peace and joy and fulfillment. Father, may that be the goal of our lives, to live in unity with each other, but to live our lives in serving you and accomplishing your will. Help us, Father, to live that way in this week ahead and in the weeks beyond. Surrendering to you, to do what you desire. For indeed, Father, that is how we will find the abundant life. Thank you, Father. Now be with us. Walk with us, guide us, direct us. Love us and use us for your glory. For this is my prayer in and through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, my Savior and my Lord, and my very bestest friend. Amen and amen. I want to thank you for joining us tonight, and I hope you have been enjoying our study of Romans. And we're just about ready to wrap it up. Next week should be our last time together in Romans. We'll be looking at chapter 16. 
and I hope you'll be able to join us then. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send me an email. My address is davidlkeel at gmail.com. So until next week, I pray that we will indeed strive to live our lives in unity, in one mind, in one heart, in one voice, worshiping together our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May God bless you.